0: So as we grow in ideals, they become the property in common of, of everyone around us. So our growth then is deeply tied to the bonds with others, the health of those bonds, and then the health of the other person. So you can see that um, this idea of flourishing, we never flourish alone, just like the trees in the forest. You know, but if we're really deeply flourishing, we support the flourishing of everyone around us.
1: Hey, this is Sharif, here with another episode of The Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, good to be here with you again.
0: Hey, Sharif, great to be back.
1: Yeah, Kevin, well, one of the ideas that we've been d- discussing lately in terms of optiwork's theory is the idea of flourishing, uh, which I think is a new way of you know, kind of describing the aim of how we help people with OptumWorks. It's a word that maybe we haven't used a whole lot before, but the concept has always been there. So I wanted to uh, dive into that more.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think flourishing is optimal work. That's what it means to do optimal work, is to flourish in your work and life. It's a great word. Right, we got it from our friends at the Harvard Flourishing Program So that uh, we have worked with on and off in different ways or have or been in, in dialogue with people there for a long time.
1: So is this... Uh a concept that's widely used in psychology, maybe more so in positive psychology, is it used there?
0: Yeah, so it does show up in positive psychology, and uh, that's why Tyler Vanderwill you know, chose flourishing as the centerpiece of their idea of what it means to to uh, be thriving in life. So I, I I like it. There's a flourishing index that he put together, and has excellent research supporting it. Uh, and we have uh, also administered that to people on optimal work at times in the past.
1: That's right. So uh, Kevin, what, is, what does flourishing mean? I'm sure a lot of people have a kind of intuitive sense of what it means that you're thriving or, well, that's just really using a synonym for it. Uh, but you're you know doing really well, you're growing, you're maybe happiness is a word that comes to mind, you're happy. Um, but I don't know if there's a tie in with, or uh, yeah, how, how would you explain that to people? How would you give a kind of uh, concrete definition for it?
0: Well, I'm not sure I can give the most concrete definition for flourishing. I think that it is very closely tied to this idea of vital engagement that, that we talk about. And that's another phrase that I think has traditionally been used to describe what it's like when the ultimate reasons for living, your ultimate sources of meaning are brought into the smallest tasks of the day. So that's a a beautiful idea, you know, that you're vitally engaged with life when each challenge is really bringing out your highest ideals and each of your relationships is bringing out your highest ideals. And I think people have this intuitive sense of when they're flourishing and when they're not. And when you're not flourishing, you know it because your work is taking energy from you and you're not able to be the best in the rest of your life versus when you really are flourishing and your work becomes a source of energy, but also is deeply tied in with your ideals and the meaning and you're becoming the person that you want to be through that work.
1: So it seems like uh, when you, that flourishing is very natural, a natural fit and a natural conceptual fit for a school of psychology like cognitive behavioral therapy, where it's very connected to your actions and getting your actions to align with uh, or, you know, commitment to your values and so forth. Um, So I'm wondering if flourishing has always had this uh, central and natural place uh, within psychology, even going back to like earlier Freudian psychoanalysis, would it have had a role uh, in, in those forms of therapy
0: it, it, every form of therapy has to have a sense of the goal it's after. And so with the Freudian therapy, the goal is generally seen as the resolution of neuroses. so that the inner conflicts that people have uh, the um, you know the the creatures of their id are somehow now integrated into the whole person. so they did have an idea of integrated, Wholeness that you're kind of being authentic, you know, to yourself, uh, and so you're not living, you know, um, with more neurotic styles of re- repressing emotions and and parts of yourself. Uh, and so, but there are, I think, very deep differences between that that idea of flourishing, um, which is inherently negative in a way because it's the removal of something negative versus what later came with cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychology, of wanting to have a positive view that has some kind of content for what it really means to be flourishing. Because if you were to ask someone, what is what is your work like when you're really flourishing? I don't, it's not just that the negative is is not dominating anymore but there needs to be something there that, is, that be- is beautiful to them. You know, and so you say like, what you know, what would, you know, what would your closest relationships look like if they were flourishing? Yeah, you know, and how would you be handling disagreements if you were flourishing? So that's what we get at in Optimum Work with, with ideals. And it's clear that when people are flourishing, they are connected to their deepest ideals or their highest ideals and that those ideals have shaped them in some way. So I think that in cognitive behavioral therapy, flourishing is seen as built on a foundation of self-mastery so that you are somehow habituating yourself to be able to live according to these high ideals. And that habituation is on the one hand if there are difficulties, those difficulties are gradually getting easier and easier to manage. And if there's a mastery or facility, that's getting stronger and stronger over time. And so there is this idea that any vicious cycles at work are being solely undone and virtuous cycles are being built in. So there's all these rich concepts of what like, what does it mean to be building a virtuous cycle? Uh, how? What are these? Um, what is self-mastery? So I think those are the, the deeper questions that the field has moved towards. And that's really where optimal work has always been centered, is on this concept of self-mastery that undergirds all flourishing.
1: Mm-hmm. So, well, I think one point, uh, there's a lot to get. I think in many ways you just summed up probably everything we we're going to talk about in this episode. But uh, so so we'll, we'll definitely dig into the different pieces there. Uh I think one point to pause on is just the connection between flourishing and ideals. And the way ideals work is that they're not just uh, states you attain. It's, I think you've often made the point that, like with the ideal of kindness, you never reach a point where you say, okay, I'm kind enough or with generous. I'm generous enough. I don't need to become more generous. No, these things admit of a kind of infinite, growth so that uh, in this picture flourishing is not a point that you get to and they say okay, okay now I'm I'm done uh, but it's flourishing is a more dynamic thing it's a state of developing virtuous cycles it's a it's a well it's not a state it's a it's a place where you're developing virtuous cycles and growing um, so I, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit
0: well I think that that's that's very well said that for like you, you think of um a forest, what does it mean for a forest or jungle to be flourishing? It doesn't mean that every tree has reached some state of perfection in the forest. We know that for the forest to be flourishing, that there are these constant processes that are, you know, where in some way, everything in it is growing stronger and more resilient. And so that if there is a hurricane or, you know, heavy winds, and it can withstand that. So that no matter what happens to it, it is able to stay itself. And it's great, it's best qualities are preserved through whatever trial may come. So that idea of like, that flourishing is this process that it's not something that happens to you. Like that I'm flourishing because I, it's it's not like a a tree in a greenhouse where everything is just done for it. In some sense, you could say, okay, maybe that tree is kind of flourishing, you know, but even then, if it's not part of the wider system of the forest, is it, Uh, but but clearly you can't, it's not the result of being perfectly sheltered from everything that go against you or having everything in your circumstances that you would most want. So flourishing can't mean that. It has to be that there's this internal state where you are able to withstand whatever comes, and not only withstand it, but it actually makes you stronger, which is what happens, I think, with inclement weather, that the the, the, the forest, in a sense, is strengthened. It goes into Nassim Taleb's idea of being anti-fragile, that flourishing is an anti-fragile state, which means the more it's tested, the stronger it gets versus something that's fragile or you know breakable, that it can get permanently broken by adversity
1: Mm -hmm. and so uh then the next point which which you touched on again is um that flourishing isn't something that happens to you and that's where i think we get to self-mastery as the central kind of internal force that helps a person flourish is this ability to master themselves and um uh, and, and then actually act according to their highest ideals. Um, so, I guess what, that seems like a, a leap or, or a step. Is is saying self mastery is what gets you to flourish. Um, so I wonder if, if we could just pause there and maybe think or consider what are alternative are there alternatives to that picture that um, have been proposed in I don't know psychology or philosophy. To, that something else leads to flourishing that's not necessarily self mastery. I know certainly some people probably have a sense of, I want this promotion or I want to make this much money or, you know, I just have to put up with the work day and get to the weekend and then I can enjoy myself. And so implicitly, maybe there's a view of flourishing there as something that happens to you, any kind of good external things happening to you, then you'll be happy. But I don't know if there's a way to. Kind of systematically think about. Yeah,
0: because in that sense, then flourishing in work would be making enough money in a short enough amount of time so that you could enjoy the rest of life. But that really has nothing to do with actual how you work. So you could you could you know have a four hour work week, but make enough money to be able to support yourself, and it's like okay, that is what flourishing means. It means getting the maximum benefit from the least amount of investment. But that isn't really then saying anything about it like how are you working what kind of person are you becoming you know in you know from from that way of working and are you really bringing the meaning of your life the your 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 highest ideals into that work so so i think that that, that that's one sense where work is something that essentially is anti-flourishing and has to be made as minimal as possible in order because flourishing there is essentially free time you know the the the, the um in some sense, a critique uh, of the more Freudian approaches has been that their idea of how you resolve inner conflicts um, can sometimes be seen as bringing your actions you know, into line with your desires. And so to repress a desire would therefore always be disordered. You know, Instead, you just have to accept the desire in a way and then act according to it. Uh, There is this deep divide in psychology between what, in a sense, is the real foundation of growth. Is it bringing your beliefs and ideals in line with your desires? Or is it bringing your desires in line with your ideals? And so, I don't think Freud himself would have taken this position, but many people from that kind of school of thought seem to be of the sense that you have to lower your ideals to match your desires. And I think that that idea is, has a lot of purchase in culture. The, but, uh, but ultimately, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and particularly acceptance and commitment therapy, the idea is that you accept the difficulty that comes internally as you shape these desire, your emotions but they're not the most fundamental thing about you. In fact, your ideals are the most fundamental thing about you, and if you you can commit yourself to these ideals and shape yourself over time. And precisely that is the definition of self-mastery. So self-mastery is shaping yourself according to your ideals, period. That process of self-shaping that's done deliberately uh, and that is uh, brought into each challenge that you face ends up being the pattern for how you master yourself. And we can talk about what are you mastering in yourself, but I think that's always the fundamental idea. It's a shaping process, which means then that ideals are actually the fundamental thing you shape toward, and they're not the thing that you shape downward.
1: hmm So uh, you mentioned that w- with this Freudian sense that you're bringing your ideals and your actions in line with your desires. Is, is there any sense of a kind of pessimism? I know sometimes I hear that is that, well, it's it's even a critique of, oh, you're so idealistic. That okay, you might have these high ideals, but it's it's impossible to live up to them. So is that one way of thinking well, about there,
0: it? Well, it's pessimistic about the idea of self-mastery because it sees self-mastery as repression. And you do not shape yourself in the best way by effortfully pushing through negative emotion to do the right thing. That kind of that that actually is like a the it's like the the evil double of self mastery, you know, where you are white knuckling it to push your we've talked about this a number of times in the, in the podcast, you know, to like push your way through. What it gets right is that the behavior is important. What it gets wrong is how you relate to the difficulty. So so the right way of relating to the difficulty is by fully accepting it. That acceptance means essentially feeling the difficulty. So you learn to like, it could be resistance that you feel to doing something. Um, Let's say there's something that like submitting your taxes, and a person has been, I had something like this recently, where a person was just delaying and delaying and delaying. But then going through how much time will it actually take, they were basically done. It would take almost just five minutes to do, to do it. Well, for them, the key was, oh, like I had. I asked them to point to where the difficulty was in their body. And they pointed exactly to the spot in the chest where, like, that is the key. What happens now as you try to feel it? And you, and you embrace it rather than trying to push through it. and they experience how it kind of went away, you know as they were opening into feeling it. And then they went and afterwards sent it in, got it done, everything was done, and then told me that all done. So that it was the acceptance of the feeling because we, um, people when they uh, are, are, when they're not letting themselves accept the difficulty that they have, they deny it exists, they avoid dealing with it, and that leads to subtle self-sabotaging. They'll sabotage themselves in all these ways because they're not willing to confront what is the, the, the kernel of the difficulty, which is the way that they feel as they're doing this, right? So, so self-mastery has this element always of facilitating the internal habituation of the pain by letting yourself accept it and feel it fully, not trying to make it go away. Anything you do to make it go away ends up making it stay. So you have to be willing to fully feel it. Now, this does get though to another issue, which is another f- I form of flourishing that people sometimes have in mind would be negating all negative feelings so that the process is one purely of emptying oneself. So sometimes Stoicism falls into this, where the goal in some way becomes not feeling through openness to feeling. I don't know if that makes so that, 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 that actually isn't, that's, that's, that's not yet self-mastery because there isn't actually the striving towards the ideal. And so now stoicism does have some idea of virtues. And so it has some idea of, you know, ideal is a virtue you use as an aim for for a, a present action. So it's a goal right now to shape yourself according to it. So what you possess, the habit is the virtue. Well, the ideal of all ideals is love. And so doing things for love and, and for the sake of your bond with others uh, is missing entirely from Stoicism. So it is more on the side of the equation of just negate the difficulty and habituate it away until you achieve extinction. But it's less on shaping the positive mastery, particularly the highest form of it, which is love. So I see Stoicism as ideals without love.
1: You've uh, referenced this a couple of times. So the last question I wanted to ask you was about the, maybe the social dimension of self-mastery. I think sometimes when people think about self-mastery, maybe precisely they have this stoic vision of you know, no matter the difficulty, I can be strong and I can do what I want and maybe in in the context of work, it's the ability to overcome distractions and just to focus and get the work done. Um, but you know th- it seems to me that there's always this social, dimension, uh, that you never are, are growing kind of alone, isolated from other people, but, uh, you're always growing towards other people growing together in the context of work. You're part of a team that's, uh, working on a common mission and then outside of work, you know, part of a family and growing together. And so I wonder if you could, uh, address this sense of that, uh, self-mastery isn't just some kind of isolated self-perfection, but, but, uh, has this inherent you know, tendency towards forming bonds with other people and, and, um, and growing with them?
0: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I would back up in my mind one step just to get clear something you were mentioning, which is that when you're not working for ideals and you're just working to get things done, or let's say you're just working to make money, okay, so and that's the, that's the thing you're pursuing, the work itself takes away vitality. It's enervating. So you might be accomplishing certain goals, like making a certain amount of money or certain other comfort goals uh, or productivity goals even. Um, and I could, But that doesn't give you the deepest source of energy. When we, uh, and this is why vital engagement is so vital. The vitality actually comes from bringing ideals into your smallest actions. And as we make progress in living ideals, we get energized by the, by the growth that we make. It's inherently rewarding to grow in an ideal. That inherent rewarding nature is why it's a virtuous cycle. That's the essence of a virtuous cycle is it's inherently rewarding. That you actually grow in enjoyment of it and in the mastery of it and in the meaning of it as you, as you repeat it. So true ideals then, always have the sense that we get energy from them because they're inexhaustible, but yet the progress we make is deeply meaningful. So that sense of vitality then, when it comes to our, our, our bonds with others, uh, it makes a difference whether we're shaping those according to comfort or pleasure or greed, you know, like whether or not you're greedy with someone else completely changes the vitality of that relationship. You know, if you're greedy in how you are dealing with other people, if that greed affects the bonds that you make or don't make, it ends up taking away the healthy vitality of those relationships. And that's what all false ideals do, that in some ways we end up then using other people and other people just become um, objects of our use Rather, you know, to get some other thing that we want rather than ends in themselves. So, but when just like ideals bring a sense of vitality to our work, they also bring vitality to our relationships. Because it's not just that we grow, like, say, you're trying to bring kindness or cheerfulness or being encouraging, you know, into the way you are dealing with other people. Well, those things, as the basis of true virtuous cycles, build up the bond with others. So every ideal really is in the service of love in the end. So they all, um, as ideals get higher and higher and higher, they converge into love. Um, Like the Final Conner story, everything that rises must converge. Uh, That is the same idea that the higher the ideal is, you know, the, the more it becomes almost just a synonym for being loving with others, but ideals, also become like a common good that's shared by both of you. So if one of you is very cheerful, the other one comes to share in it too. And if one of you is very generous, the other will come to share in it if you have a stable trusting bond. So as we grow in ideals, they become the property in common of of everyone around us. So our growth then is deeply tied to the bonds with others, the health of those bonds, and then the health of the other person. So you can see that... um, this idea of flourishing—we never flourish alone, just like the trees in the forest. You know, but if we're really deeply flourishing, we support the flourishing of everyone around us.
1: Great, Kevin. Well, I think that's a very beautiful note for us to end on. Thanks so much for all your insights here today.
0: Well, thanks for thanks for the great questions, Sharif. As always.
1: All right, we'll be back next week.